Put your hands together if you love Jesus. You can do a little bit better than that. Let's, get, let's give God praise for Jesus. Amen, amen. Also, if you're proud to be a part of Thrive Church, put your hands together. What an amazing, amazing ministry. Um, Pastor Keith was just talking about the generosity of this ministry, and I have a pretty unique perspective of being able to speak to that. Um, about 10 years ago, I um, identified a gap of services in our city or in our region for homeless veterans, and uh, the average age of a homeless veteran is 57 years old, uh, which means a lot of these veterans fought in very traumatic wars and had a lot of issues that were not being addressed. Ten years ago, we founded Liberation Veterans Services uh, to house 38 homeless veterans to help them get back on their feet and to get permanent housing. But that's not exactly why you should clap. Why you should clap is your pastor made sure that Thrive personally contributed to that effort. And so you all should be so proud of the fact that your contributions support homeless veterans in the Richmond region. And uh, speaking of that, we also want to thank God and honor Pastor Kevin in his absence. Great leader. We love him and we thank God for him. Um, we also want to thank God for Pastor Kevin, or Pastor Keith, I'm sorry, and his uh, leadership in Pastor Kevin's absence. Um, amen. Amen. Today I'm not going to be before you long, uh, but we do have a message that I believe will be encouraging to you. Let's go to the book of Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse number 20 is where we'll begin. Luke chapter 15, verse number 20. Say amen when you get there. If you haven't got there, say, wait on me. All right. Luke chapter 15, verse number 20. Luke 15, verse number 20 is where we will begin. Try one more time. Say amen if you got it. All right. Say, wait on me if you don't. All right. Let's get into it. Luke chapter 15, verse number 20. Here it goes. It says, and he arose. And came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We give you all the honor and the praise. We thank you for Pastor Kevin, and we thank you for this wonderful church. 
God, I just ask you right now that you will continue to bless them, give them increase, watch over every family that's here today. And Lord God, even on uh, their Sunday that they're growing and expanding into new services, God, I ask you to exceed their expectations. God, I ask you that you will bless them with more than enough health and prosperity and so much joy. And we thank you for all these things. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone says amen. Amen. Today, uh, my message is a bit tricky, but you're going to understand where I'm going shortly. My message title is, The Results Are In, You Are Not the Father. The Results Are In, You Are Not the Father. Today, I want to offer a fresh perspective of an old but famous parable, the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is a member of a trilogy of parables that Jesus used to address the Pharisees' concerns with his interactions with sinners and tax collectors. The parable seems to highlight the youngest son. We learn a great deal from the youngest son's audacious ask of his father's inheritance. We learn a lot from his riotous lifestyle and ultimately his redemption upon his return. We also glean some valuable lessons from the older brother's disposition, his faithfulness and consistency while his younger brother was away partying, his protective posture of his father's name and legacy, and finally, his anger and resentment at the lack of consequences the father imposes on his younger brother. Sounds a little bit like the Pharisees that started the conversation in the first place. But today, I think there's a lot more to learn in this parable that I want to extract. I want to focus today on the father. It will explain my title a bit because while the parable highlights the son, it points out an important lesson about the father, mainly that sons are supposed to be like their dads. And neither of these sons exhibit their hearts, their father's heart or their father's decisions. Take a journey with me today as we examine this parable, not by what the sons did, but who the father was. I think this parable answers a very profound question, and that is, who is God the Father, really? Ask somebody next to you, say, who is God the Father, really? Now, we know his ways are not our ways, and we know we'll fully, never fully understand him, but I think this story wants us to try. God wants the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the sinners, the tax collectors, and yes, even you and I, he wants us to understand who he is. I think a lot of times we take for granted that we know who the Father is. We take for granted that we know his nature. But the reality is, is that God, the Father, is much more than most of us realize. What is his nature? Is God a sponsor? Is he a taskmaster? Or is he the regular, everyday dad that just wants to protect his children? 
I want you to ask yourself today, which one is he to you? Most of you would probably say, well, he's all three. Well, I think that you should ask yourself which one, which version, which nature of God you relate to the best. Because once you arrive at that answer, you will realize that how you see God and how you perceive God and what nature you perceive him to be as your father determines how you live your life. It also determines how you talk to him and what you talk to him about. Write this down. The best way to abuse a relationship is to not identify it properly. The best way to abuse a relationship is to not identify it properly. Have you ever been in a relationship before and the other person didn't get the memo? No, seriously. You were in a full-blown relationship, but the person that you were in a relationship with did not get the memo. In other words, um, you probably thought you were in the relationship because there were enough signs or enough of a resemblance of a relationship that caused you to change your behaviors. Maybe you went on a job interview and you left that job interview feeling as if you had the job in the bag. You just knew that you nailed that interview. Why? Because all the signs were there. The person who was interviewing you nodded their head, they smiled, they gave you a firm handshake, and they had all the suggestive language to suggest that you would get a call offering you the job. Ultimately, you got an email saying, unfortunately, we had so many wonderful applicants. See, partial perception, partial perception leads to failed expectations. Say that one more time. Partial perception, not having a full understanding of the person you're in relationship with. It leads to failed expectations. And in many cases, we only see a version of the Father. We only understand a portion of his nature. And therefore, many times we have failed expectations. What are the ways that we typically identify paternity? One is through resemblance. You have a child, and if they look like the father, that is one way that we tell. Another way is through their proclivities, their, their character, how they behave. Another is an inheritance that the father may have for the child. And we validate this in John 8 and 39 because... We want to understand today, um, how do we identify God's identity as a father? Um, John 8 and 39 says this, said, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto him, if ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. In other words, this is not Abraham's nature. And then he says, you do the deeds of your father. 
And so today, as we sit here today, um, we all have some resemblances of our Father, God the Father. And even in the way we relate to him, we have some resemblance. For some of us, God is a Father in that he supplies our needs. For some, God is our taskmaster. He's given us a job to do. And so, therefore, that is how we relate to the Father. But that's not exactly how fraternity truly is determined uh, in this parable. Fraternity is determined in this parable like it should be determined by us, and that's by blood. It's not by sponsorship. It's not by good gifts. It's not by giving us an assignment to go and preach and teach and sing. It's because we have the blood of Jesus Christ inside of us. It is that blood, it is that DNA that determines fraternity. And the good thing about that is, is that no matter how far you go into a far country, you still have the same blood. I don't know about you, but the beautiful thing about a relationship with the Father is that my sin doesn't necessarily change his view of me. He loves me because we have the same blood. We have the same DNA running through us. And so we see here in the parable, the Father does three acts. He gives. He gives an inheritance to his younger son prematurely. The son is not ready for it. He knows that, but he gives the son an inheritance anyway. The second act is that he sees his son from afar off. The third act is that he restores his son back into the fold. Now, the role of the father is not to just give his son an inheritance. It's to teach him why there's an inheritance in the first place. The role of the father is to teach his sons the character of this inheritance so that he can manage it and be a good steward of it. See, if the sons had got it right, they would have shifted from wanting the father's stuff to wanting the father's ways. They were both focused so much on the father's gifts, the father's inheritance, the father's financial blessings, the father's sponsorship, that they missed the fact that the father was trying to teach both of them his ways. He wanted the Pharisees to know, you may have my laws, but you don't have my ways. And so therefore, this parable is teaching or attempting to teach the Pharisees the same things he wanted to teach his sons. One is that even if I give you this inheritance and you lose it all, I'll be waiting for you with open arms because you have my blood. And to the older brother who was jealous and offended that his younger brother didn't receive any consequences, the father let him know, you've been with me all along. And everything that I have is yours as well. He wanted to teach them his ways more than giving them his stuff. 
And so I think there's three main ways we learn God's nature as a father, and that's through relationship. There's the submissive relationship, there's a linear relationship, and then there's a vertical relationship. Um, it's through relationship that God identifies that man should not be alone. And so in the submissive relationship, many of us, I think we'll find today, if we are honest, that we may be divided in how we view God as a father. The submissive relationship, what does that mean? That means that my view of God is that he's only interested in supplying my needs. Many of us today, if we're honest, could admit that the primary way I relate to God is through answering my prayers and meeting my needs. Paying my bills, healing from a sickness or disease. I call it submissive because it means that God is basically submitted to your request. He is only interested in meeting your needs. And here's why this relationship version is flawed in a sense, is because many people end up falling away from God when they don't feel like he's answering. Or if they feel like he's not answering fast enough. Or if you feel like, I prayed and I prayed and I gave my offerings and I did everything that was supposed to happen and I still didn't get what I prayed for. So then we, we try alternate religions and alternate ways to try to get the answers that we want. But we have to understand God's role as a father is so much bigger. I have, a, I have two, two sons, four-year-old, two-year-old. And I imagine that uh, my four-year-old will come home one day. His name is Wellington. And I imagine he'll come home one day and he'll say, Dad, Dad, um, we're raising money for uh, my basketball camp and we're selling donuts. And uh, would, you, would you buy some donuts for me or would you help me uh, with my donut sales? And um, here's the thing. Uh, as a father, you know, I'm, I'm not a rich man, but I can handle some donuts, right? Um, so, so, so I could purchase all of his donuts if I wanted to. But as a father, I am not his sponsor, which basically means that if I was to purchase all of them from him, I would rob him of the lessons of earning it himself. And that's what we don't always understand in our relationship with God is that when we're praying and we may not get the answer we want, it's because God's primary role is not to meet your immediate need. God's relationship with you is not transactional, it's relational. So there may be some transactions that don't happen the way you think they should. But God has a much longer term plan in mind because his role is a father. My role as a father is for my son to learn the lessons of earning potential and being a good steward and speaking uh, well and shaking someone by the hand and learning how to network and get to know people. He'll never do that if I just give him everything that he asked for. Does this make sense? The submissive relationship, the submissive relationship is one where we believe that that, that, that God gives us everything that we need, and that is his role as father. Where do we find this in the parable? It's in Luke 15 and 12. 
where the younger, it says, and the younger of them said to his father, give me my portion of goods that falleth to me. Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Give me what you owe me as your son. We could probably coin this as the prosperity gospel. This is where we feel God is all about stuff. And we define who's closer to God by how much more stuff they have than the rest of us. But I don't believe that's how the Father works at all. I believe that the Father is responsible for our character more than our bank accounts. Amen. I believe he's more responsible for our being raised up in his ways and his nature. Write this down. A father can be a sponsor, but a sponsor alone can never be a father. A father can be a sponsor, but a sponsor alone could never be a father. The second type of relationship is linear, linear relationship. This is when God, the father, functions like an employer, an employer. Um, we have a job to do. Um, He's only interested in what I can do for him. He's only interested in my works. He's only interested in the hired servants in his house. In other words, another way to say it is um, in Luke 15, 17 through 19, says, and when he came to himself, this is the younger son, he said, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare while I'm perishing with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your hired servants. In other words, the younger brother says, my sin status is connected to my son status. I'm no longer a son based on my behaviors. Raise your hand if you're a parent. All right. Good, good, good group. Now, if you go in a grocery store with your child, imagine your child is much younger, probably five years or younger. Have you ever been in a grocery store with your child and lost sight of them for a split second? And you know how much anxiety comes over you, how stressed you feel for just that moment, well, multiply that by a million. That's how our Father God feels about you when you seem to be lost. When you're out of his sight for just a moment, he is anxious to bring you back home. How do you know this? Because the vertical relationship suggests that the, 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 the father sees the son from afar off. Which means that he never stopped 
waiting for him to come back. I imagine every evening he would go to the end of the city looking, waiting for his younger son to come back. Which means I don't care what you've done today, I don't care what your level uh, you may feel your relationship with God is, he's still looking for you. He's still looking for you. He's still waiting for you. He's still, his heart is panting frantically. That's how much he loves you. And no matter what kind of sin you could have done, it doesn't change your blood. And he's waiting for you to return. I'll wrap this up right here. The younger son has to come back. He comes back home. And the older son is upset about it. The father is confused because neither of his sons seem to have learned the lesson he wanted them to get. See, in the vertical relationship with the father, here's what's really, really important to understand. What's really important to understand is that The younger son has an idea, watch this, that he has to come home for forgiveness. The older son has the idea that the younger son should have to work to earn his forgiveness. Here's the father's nature. He wants you to come home because you're already forgiven. give you a free free marriage tip. You never want your spouse to have to come home. Yeah. You never want your spouse to have to come home. And all of you that are married say, well, yeah, they, they do have to come home. Yeah. No, you want them to want to come home. See, the father that we have, the father that we serve, he's not one that, that, that wants you to earn your forgiveness. He's not one that, that, that is so upset with you because you went away. He says, come home, you're already forgiven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You're already forgiven. And he says, the younger son is trying to say, I want to be, I want to, be one of your workers. I want to be a slave. I want to be a servant. He says, no. The father doesn't even entertain the conversation. The father says, go get a ring, put it on his hand. Go get a robe, put it on his back. Go get sandals and put it on his feet. What was the father saying symbolically, and I'm leaving? The father was saying, I'm putting a ring on your finger because contextually and culturally in that day, the ring had the creed of the father's name on it. And whenever you could go into a store or a grocery, you could just stamp your ring because the father's name was the seal that could purchase anything that you needed. He says, even though you spent all the inheritance, you still have my name. He put the robe on him just, be, just like uh, 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 Joseph's father put a robe of many colors on him to say, you're my beloved and I favor you. And the last act he did was he put sandals on his feet. And the sandals on his feet was to suggest 
you are asking to be a slave because slaves and servants in those days did not wear shoes. But he says, I'm going to put shoes on your feet because you'll never be a slave to me. You are my son. You can work as hard as you want, but you're still my son. Your sin status does not change your blood. And you've had a blood transfusion in Jesus Christ. God bless you all. We thank you in Jesus' name.